Korea has not been the only battleground since the end of the Second World War. Men have fought and died in Malaya, in Greece, in the Philippines, in Algeria, and Cuba, and Cyprus, and almost continuously on the Indo-Chinese Peninsula. No nuclear weapons have been fired. No massive nuclear retaliation has been considered appropriate. This is another type of warfare, new in its intensity, ancient in its origin, war by guerrillas, subversives, insurgents, assassins, war by ambush instead of by combat, by infiltration instead of aggression, seeking victory by eroding and exhausting the enemy instead of engaging him. It is a form of warfare uniquely adapted to what has been strangely called wars of liberation. To undermine the effort of new and poor countries to maintain the freedom that they have finally achieved. It preys on economic unrest and ethnic conflicts. It requires in those situations where we must counter it, you may hold a position of command with our special forces, forces which are too unconventional to be called conventional, forces which are growing in number and important and significant. And these are the kinds of challenges that will be before us in the next decade. If freedom is to be saved, it requires a whole new kind of strategy, a wholly different kind of force, and therefore a new and wholly different kind of military training. This is your first time doing a podcast. Yes, it is. Case of beer, I owe you, I guess. Yeah. Um, so you, you've you done a number of things in the um, United States Army. You are now retired, and you now have a, a company called Storm Tactical Consulting. Uh, can we talk about the company a little bit, like what motivates you to start it and what you guys offer? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the reason I started this company was I took a job with a big defense contractor when I first retired from the army and the defense contracting world is very cutthroat. There's a lot of people out there that, um, they like to use people's resumes, uh, from, from our industry and benefit themselves and make a lot of money. And then they like to dump on eventually the, the, the guys like us who they use to get what they want, those big contracts. So that and the, the other reason, I guess, is there's a lot of frauds out there. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to get into specifics who exactly, but, uh, you know, we see them. We see them on social media. And a couple of buddies of, of mine and myself – uh, decided to kind of be the myth busters, I guess, if you will, if that makes sense. Yeah. 
and uh, kind of get out there and, you know, put put the ground truth out there, man, and let people know how it really is. And, you know, it's a different world now. The threats are everywhere. They're, they're right here in our backyard. So, you know, guys like us, we want to kind of share the, the, the knowledge that we gained uh, through through trial error and a lot of bloodshed and uh, maybe make a living at the same time. You know, right? Because everybody has to make a living. That's but, right. Um, you know, it's certainly important. I think um, you know, for civilians and even guys like yourself uh, to kind of stay sharp on your skill set and whatnot. Um, but you know, now with the war going on for so long, there are so many guys getting out and and starting companies. Yeah, and um, exactly. You know, there's a lot of companies, and I think the the market is kind of oversaturated. And then, like you said, there are some people who perhaps aren't as qualified as they make themselves seem or they aren't qualified at all to teach, you know, tactics, shooting or whatnot. And, right. Um, right. And I think that could be dangerous because of the nature of the of the uh, training. Uh, yeah, exactly. It is extremely dangerous, depending on what capacity you're you're kind of diving in with. Right. And, and so what exactly is it that your company offers in terms of uh, training? So it's kind of a wide umbrella, uh, mostly shooting. We do some, uh, you know, we do some niche stuff with, with some uh, people that actually, like Rangers. I've worked with the Rangers. I've worked with some SF guys. I've worked with some SEALs. Uh, and I, I offer real niche stuff, at, you know, on the side with, with the shooting and the uh, tactics. Do a lot of CQB training, a lot of basic CQB, a lot of fundamentals, uh, getting the fundamentals out there. Because where I came from, yeah, we were really good and we were really fast. And the only reason we were those things is because we mastered fundamentals. We mastered the basics. And you'll hear that from a couple of uh, colleagues of mine that are out there that are also competitors. But um, mastering the basics, learning the fundamentals. And practicing those fundamentals so much that they become, you heard the terms muscle memory, you know, neurological pathways building that untrained, or I'm sorry, uh, not untrained, but um, uh, not conscious thought, you know, response. Right. Involuntary, I guess. So so basically training to the point where it's, it's, it's like a reaction, you're not even thinking about it. Yes. Repetitions. That's correct. Right. And and I think that what's interesting about some of the the philosophy and mindset that you and and guys like yourself sh- share, it's very unique to the military and, and to special operations. But it also, in my opinion, can spill over into other um, aspects of life. You know, absolutely, man. You you never know. Um, you know, you might be going taking your family out to the movies, and it's already happened here. You know, active shooter—that's the buzzword nowadays. Um, you know, whatever, whatever the case is, just being prepared, man, training with, with your equipment and your kid or however you carry your, you know, your systems or your, your guns, your medical equipment, and just training with it and just becoming very natural, being very confident with it in case of an emergency or, you know, something breaks out. Right. And it's, it's interesting to be also, because I feel like the, the whole concept of mastering the basics uh-huh. and that kind of gets you to the, the top of your game. I think that really applies to almost everything. If you know, sports and 
uh, a whole bunch of other different avenues of life that 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 all correlates and uh, comes together. Uh, so can we talk about uh, your military background? Like what motivated you to join the Army and then if we can kind of go through your career? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so the reason I joined the Army, <clears throat> I joined the Army uh, in the very early 90s. Uh, around 1990-91, I'd done some time in college, um, went into the job market, and the, the, the uh, career field, I wanted to be a chef, actually. Funny story. Really? Uh, yeah, and I worked as a chef. I worked as a sous chef, so like basically the 2IC of a kitchen. Um, not right away, but after some time and experience, I worked in a few different restaurants, and it was during uh, the early – early nineties, we had a really bad recession. So a lot of restaurants were either going out of business or business slowed down tremendously. Um, and I always had this, this thing in the back of my head that said, you know, I wanted to be a green beret. Uh, and it might've been John Wayne movie. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Watching a lot of movies, you know, Navy seals, that kind of stuff. So, you know, I just got tired of it, man. So I went to the recruiter. I was like, Hey, want to be a green beret. And at that time you couldn't join the army and become a green beret. You had to have time in the army already and have worked in a certain, uh, occupational skill specialty. So I did that. Um, joined the army 1992 worked in a, an MOS. I was a stinger missile guy. Uh, so basically I went around with infantry guys and protected them from air attack, close range air attack. Uh, not a really exciting job. Uh, the, the recruiting video I saw was, you know, pretty awesome. And the recruiter was like, Hey, you want to be a ranger with a Patriot missile on your shoulder? I'm like, yeah, maybe. <laughs> and, uh, you know, for lack of, or, or for ignorance on my part, lack of, uh, research. Yeah. I took that job. <laughs> well, I, I think the recruiters will, will kind of get a lot of people, right? If you're not, uh, they'll they'll get you. Yeah, they'll get yeah. you if you're not careful. You got to do your research, which you know I did none. So I watched movies. That was my research. <laughs> and uh, anyways, eventually I became a Green Beret after doing my time and you know trying out and stuff like that. So I became an 18 Delta, a Special Forces medic. Um, which wasn't my first choice, but hey, what are you going to do? I became a Green Beret. I was pretty excited about that, you know, and uh, worked worked in that field. Went to 5th Special Forces Group at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Uh, didn't want to go there. Wanted to go to 7th Group because I already knew Spanish. And they, they used to do, back in the 90s, they did much cooler trips than 5th Group did uh, based on their area of operations, right? South America, oh, Central right. America. Yeah, yeah. Not the Middle East. <laughs> but uh, once the war kicked off, 9-11 happened, the war kicked off, everybody's area of responsibility was the Middle East. So it didn't really matter at that point. Uh, so did that for a while. Uh, I probably did three, three deployments as a Green Beret, combat deployments. I guess it was probably around 2004, 2005. And then I tried out for the Army Special Missions Unit. And I made it uh, while there. I did numerous deployments, uh, got in a lot of good gunfights, learned a lot of lessons, lost some good friends. Um, 
and then I retired. I retired uh, 20 years later after my initial enlistment, 2012. Okay, so you've been out for a couple of years now. I've been retired for five years now. Yep. Right. So I didn't know you were you were 18 Delta. That's yeah. That's yeah. Funny story. You know, uh, that was my last choice. Well, no, that wasn't my last choice. Comma was my last choice. And my motivating, my saving grace for getting me through the 18 Delta course was I did not want to go become a commo guy and spend eight hours a day learning Morse code because that's what they did with the washouts of the 18 Delta course. They sent them over to the Echo course. So that motivated me. So I was studying my ass off, man. Like, I'm not lying or exaggerating when I say I literally studied six hours a night. Yeah, I know that's an incredibly difficult course to, to pass. And then I know the majority of the the special operations medics from the other um, units, they only go through about half of that course, uh, whereas the 18 Deltas complete the entire course. Yeah, that's correct. They go through the uh, SOCOM portion, the first half. And, and what's the second half called? Uh, SFMS, Special Forces Medical Sergeant, which is another uh, six-month course. Which is a little, little more detail, a little more in depth, more, more clinical stuff, more kind of diagnosing patients, running tests, learning the uh, diagnostics, and just longer term care kind of stuff, as opposed to combat trauma, first responders. There I am on scene, guy just got blown up. What do I do? That would be the first half. Right. So <clears throat> when you when you went through the the eighteen Delta course. Uh, was TCCC already prominent or did that come later? Nope, that came much later. Uh, back then, uh, during my 18 Delta training, it was ABCs. Remember ABCs, right? Oh, Airway, no, breathing, no. circulation, yeah. Okay. We, you know, there's you know acronyms and buzzwords you know, that guys get through that kind of stuff. ABC, uh, initial assessment. Uh, primary assessment and then detailed assessment were the three, I guess, phases of of uh, casualty care when I was doing the uh, the course. Now it's TCCC and uh, there's a couple other acronyms out there, March and that kind of stuff. By the time TCCC came out, were you still working as a, a 18 Delta or had you already uh, uh, made that career progression? No, I already uh, crossed over to the dark side. <laughs> um. You know, I know talking about that kind of stuff, you got, you can't, you got to be vague. But did you continue doing medical work in, in that side or no? So, yeah, um, the great thing about that unit was they kind of harbor your natural abilities and, and uh, or your pr- previous training. So, you know, you never know what's going to happen. You might have a mass cal event. We have a lot of casualties. So, all the 18 deltas, whether operator qualified or their support guys, whatever the whatever their role is in that unit, they still maintain their currency. They're still sent through the um, special forces medical refresher every two years, and they maintain their skills in that way. Because you never know, man. Stuff happens, and I and I've actually been in some some pretty bad uh, gunfights where, you know, I was re- I was needed to perform 18 delta training or uh skills right and i know that through the the gwat you know one of the positives to come from it is the um the amount of guys coming back and surviving battlefield wounds um yep. and, and i guess that's with the emergence of the t triple c and uh 
you know, the, the widespread tourniquet use. Yeah. Yeah. Now, but when I, when I learned how to put tourniquets on, it was, it was, you know, uh, forbidden, like any, no one else, no one could ever do it. It was the last case. Uh, this is when I first joined the army and, um, you know, last ditch effort, don't apply a tourniquet unless, you know, that's it. Now you got guys, you got law enforcement guys carrying, uh, cat tourniquets. You got paramedics are throwing them on. You got like everybody, even civilians are learning how to do T triple C to one, one through one form or another. Right. And, and I think kind of using that, the, the philosophy of everybody should know how to use a tourniquet and, and that really saved a lot of lives on the battlefield. I think that same philosophy if applied here in the States would save a lot of preventable deaths, you know, like car crashes or whatever. Absolutely. Absolutely. Total just over 20 years in the army, right? Yeah. A little over a few months over 20. Okay, right. So throughout your time, were you enlisted or were you an officer? I was an enlisted guy. Okay. Leadership is something that is is kind of uh, something that's sought out by by human beings or big companies and people kind of you know want to learn about leadership or what's the best way to lead and right know serving in some of these units this is something that you guys have had to develop especially under fire or, or being in a you know really bad gunfight what in, in your opinion what are some of the good qualities of a leader that, that you've seen in your time in the military <laughs> that's a good question all right so good qualities of a leader to me a leader is a guy who not a guy a, a person who can assess a situation and, and make timely decisions. Though they may not be the best decisions, they need to be timely uh, to, to, to initiate some type of reaction, to get things moving. Uh, lack of leadership, a lot of times I've seen, is somebody not making a decision in a timely manner where it affected the outcome uh, and, and it very well could be a catastrophic outcome. So, you know, there's a lot of traits to leadership. Uh, I, I could sit here for, for hours to talk about leadership. Uh, and it's, it, to me, the biggest thing is a, it's a certain type of personality, man. That, and there's people that will disagree with that. There's, a, there's natural born leaders out there. And it's a personality trait. You're either born with it or you're not. I'm not saying you can't learn it because you absolutely can. And I've seen guys do that. My 20 years in the army, I was very introverted when I joined and I had to be a little more assertive at times and kind of develop that. And I don't know if that makes sense. No, it does. It does. And, and I think, you know, me, uh, my personally, myself, you know, I've kind of been more introverted earlier in life, you know? Sure. Yeah. Cause you're young experience right. gives you confidence and confidence is a big part of that leadership. That's probably one of the bigger traits is just confidence. And it's not cockiness or, or brashness. It's just, Hey man, I've done this. This is what I'm going to do to handle this. And 
like I said, that, that helps you with those timely decisions. They may not be the best decision, but it's a decision. It gets actions happening. It makes, it starts movement necessary to either accomplish the mission or deal with whatever the, the crisis is, if that makes sense. No, it, it does. And, and I, I'm, I've seen, I've been around people in, in situations of work environment where I felt like the, that confidence wasn't there from the individual who was in that sure. leadership role. Sure. And, and it really showed in, in, in other areas, you know, like kind of, uh, being a little bit, uh, what's the word? Like too, too heavy handed in, in some instances. Right. And then in another instance where you should be kind of heavy handed, you, you kind of fall back from it. You know, it's kind of ends up being kind of backwards. You know, spending 20 years in the Army in special operations during the GWAT, uh, you know, obviously you have a ton of stories from uh, your time in, in combat. Can you share a story with the audience uh, just to kind of give them a, a taste of what that what that was like for you? Yeah, I suppose. Uh, like, what are you looking for? What type of story? Um, uh, Just something that maybe stood out to you. Uh, it, it could be on a, on a deployment. It could be something that that during training that was kind of funny to you or anything like that. Uh, yeah, yeah, I could do that. I probably get a lot of them. Um, let's talk about poor leadership, and I'll give you a kind of an example. Okay. Uh, okay. So in special forces, um, my first team sergeant, he was a, he was a, an old timer, I guess he had been in SF since the early nineties. Um, this timeframe was 2004. Uh, it was OIF. You guys, you're familiar with OIF, the acronyms, right? Okay, yeah. so OIF two, uh, two thousand four. It was when Fallujah was the Wild West, right around the time the Nick Berg beheading, Abu Musab al Zarqawi, was kind of taking over, right, um, Iraq or Al Qaeda of Iraq, and it was the kind of predecessor to the Islamic State as it is today. Um, so we had two ODAs, uh, one on each side of Fallujah. One ODA, the other ODA, was actually living in Fallujah on the outskirts in a uh, team house and performing daily operations, different operations that SF guys do when they're in that role. Uh, my team, we were living on a FOB on, a, on the opposite side of town, and we were doing operations also. Uh, kind of the safer side, I guess, and this, this was... Due to this, this team sergeant was, um, he was getting ready to wrap it up after this deployment, call it a retirement. He didn't want to, you know, risk anything or anyone, any equipment, that kind of thing. You know, I kind of get that. But played it extremely safe. And we had ample opportunities. Uh, we were building target packages on some big, big hitters in the bad guy world, in the Al-Qaeda world. Uh Guys that were directly involved with uh, Zarqawi and a couple other uh, people. So anyways, 
the ultimate slap in the face was, all right, hey, guys, one day, this was Easter of 2004, hey, we're going to go resupply the other guys in town. And that's what we did occasionally, resupply convoys in broad daylight in military vehicles looking like big army machine, which typically at that time frame in Fallujah, if you were looking like big army and you were driving around in daylight, you're going to get ambushed, right? So. Right. Yeah, sure as shit, man. We went out there, no nothing, no incursions on the way out. Uh, while at the team house, we we did start taking some some pot shots, some random gunfire. I remember I was on the rooftop uh, with my sniper buddy, with the other team's sniper team, and we we're just kind of doing some observation, looking around. They were pointing out some uh, key key features of the the local terrain and some of the players there. And, you know, we were taking some gunfire. So we got, we got a few opportunities to take, return some, some shots and do some counter sniper stuff. So then the team sergeant's like, Hey, time to go home. I had enough of this, you know, (laughs) I don't know if it was stress or whatever. So we left and this was, like I said, broad daylight and we didn't not vary our route, which, you know, that's kind of one of the one Oh one, uh, of, of your, of your, uh, route selection is don't, you know, vary your routes. Don't take the same route, especially if you're in a column of, you know, three gun trucks, three Humvees, uh, a cargo, a big Iraqi cargo truck, Iraqi leaderships and, a um, Land Rover Defender and one or two other vehicles. But we did, we left that way uh, against some of, uh, some of the guys on the team's advice. He's like, no, we're just going to go the way we came in. So we did, and lo and behold, I'm driving, I don't know, I think it was vehicle number three. I see a RPG come off this second deck balcony, completely miss the lead vehicle, thank goodness, and explode, you know, off in the distance. Uh, and then all of a sudden, machine gun fire opens up on us. Uh, and I, I could see tracer rounds literally in front of my, passing over my hood. So at that point, you know, everything slows down and I'm thinking to myself, shit, man, <laughs> you know, this, this might be my day. So whatever, let's, let's get through it. Let's fight through it. So the crew serve weapons on those, uh, GMVs, those Humvees, they started returning fire. Uh, we had three gun trucks, um, three Humvees, which are armed with a 50 cal up front, a, 40 cal, an automatic uh, 40 cal as the second vehicle. And then the third Humvee was another 50 cal, an M2. So two out of those three weapon systems went down, right? Murphy's Law. Oh, yeah, yeah. So the lead 50 cal, his gun went down. My truck, which was the 40 cal, the Mark 19, went down. And the only really cruise serve weapon that was given to him was that rear 50 cal. We, do, we did have um, 240s on the backs of our Humvees, which were manned by, we had some Marine guys attached to us at that time. They were pulling PSD for the uh, Mar- uh, Marine 1st Mardiv commander. Well, I believe at the time was... Uh, Mattis? Or? Yeah, General Mattis, actually. Yeah. Yep. So th- it was his PSD guys. They used to come hang out with us when they weren't working with him and, you know, kind of shoot the shoot the bull and kind of hang out with sf guys i guess you know whatever so they were returning fire with our crew serve machine guns on the backs of our humvees we had a couple guns go down we started taking mortar fire uh 60 millimeter mortars 
one hit my rear axle or my right rear wheel blew it out. All of a sudden my truck stops. I'm revving the engine, giving it gas and it's not going anywhere. Something got jarred loose. Uh, the team sergeants, he starts, you know, he's in a panic. So he's yelling stuff, get, get behind cover or get this vehicle behind cover. He, you know, he's, he's about to jump off the vehicle and run and get behind some cover. <clears throat> and, uh, I told my buddy driving that third gun truck behind us. It's like, Hey dude, ram us, man. Push us out of the kill zone. We were basically on the X taking somewhat effective fire. Um, right. And he did. He rammed me. I, all, all my tires are blown out, but, you know, the Humvees have run flats. Um, he rammed me. It jostled something. I think it was the transfer case slipped when we got that first mortar round. Kind of jarred something. And anyways, it came back. So I was able to drive off. So I drove off the X. Uh, the crew serve weapon guy on my, uh, my crew serve weapon in our vehicle, he started shooting AT4s because we did have some AT4s and some other stuff. So, you know, he was just trying to try to return some fire to get us out of there so we could break contact. And uh, luckily, we made it about a mile away. We were able to kind of reconsolidate and reorganize. And I could change my flat tire, one of them anyways, because I had one spare. And uh, we kind of went back after that. We did end up losing uh, two Iraqi guys. Actually, one of them was wounded pretty bad, but he survived. That uh, Defender, or I'm sorry, the Land Rover, yeah, the, I guess it was a Defender, got mortared and kind of flipped over on its side. The driver was killed. The uh, passenger had, I don't know, he had a pretty serious gunshot wound, but he survived. The other team actually went back and got those guys out of there after we hauled ass. So not a, not a, good, not a good time for us and our team. And uh, that, that stood out in my mind as, you know, you asked the leadership question, good traits of leadership. That stands out in my mind. Like, I'll never forget that day. Thanking the Lord that nobody on my team or the Marines got a scratch somehow. Uh, actually, a couple of the Marines on the backs did get some scratches, and they ended up receiving Purple Hearts, which is bullshit, but whatever. Uh, but we survived. Some of us got some uh, valorous awards and all that for getting out of there and getting off the X. But long story short, poor leadership led that. That could have completely been avoided uh, for, for a few simple reasons. Or with a few simple reasons or solutions, you know what I mean? Right, and I think after a situation like that, I think the team kind of loses faith in him as as a leader, and and that could have a negative effect going forward, I guess. Absolutely, and I put my packet in to go to the SMU as soon as we got back from that deployment. <laughs> yeah, that's like motivation, right? Yeah, I'm like, you know what? I'm not working for this clown anymore. Yeah, and it's interesting because. You would assume that being in Special Forces, being a Green Beret, all the all the guys in the leadership roles are, you know, top of their game. You know, it's it's not always like that. True, true. It's not uh, much to my, you know, disappointment. Right. Right. And you you mentioned um, <clears throat> I was a Kari. And yep. I was I was listening to a, a popular podcast. What was it last night or the night before? And they were talking about Iraq and and how the Islamic State kind of shocked people, and no one knew, you know, 
anything about him until you know you see him on Twitter cutting people's heads off. But yep. I thought that, that that couldn't be further from the truth because Zakari, he's well known for what he was doing in Iraq and absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, his, his followers kind of kept that going uh, for a number of years. So it's just. It's just amazing to me how ignorant people are on, on some of these issues. Well, you know, you know, they're uninformed, and our media doesn't do the best job of reporting what's actually happening, you know, as they say, the ground truth. My friend, the Islamic State was the Islamic State as early as the mid, early, you know, 2005, 2006. We didn't call it. Some of them did. Some of them addressed it as the Islamic State. They were starting it. It was the predecessor, right? Um, including Zarqawi. There was there was communications intercepted by him, calling it the Islamic State of Iraq, uh, or just the Islamic State. They called it AQIZ or Al Qaeda of Iraq, and he did report to uh, I think it was Bin Laden himself. Yeah. However, he was starting his own um, fatwa, you know, his own crusade, for lack of a better term. I shouldn't use the word crusade, but basically the Islamic State. That was the predecessor. So, you know, you see ISIL, ISIS, all this stuff now, that's just a new buzzword, man. That it, It's been the Islamic State for some time now. But it's like you said, the ignorant – I don't want to call it ignorance because just people are just uninformed. They don't know, man. They don't know what they don't know. Right, and, and I think, you know, you see some of the stuff they're doing – you know, they're broadcasting everything, so you get to see it, you know, videos and whatnot. Sure. But, but that kind of thing been going on in Iraq since, you know, what, 2004 or something? Yeah, 2004, um, 2005. Uh, that was, like I said, the, the start of the Islamic State. Right. And, I don't and think we actually called it the Islamic State till like, 09, 08, 09, but... Right. Yep. Right, and, and they were putting out, like... Um, you know, you mentioned uh, Berg. I think Nick Berg was his name. He was beheaded yes. by Zakari. Yep. And and they would put those tapes out like like at the markets and whatnot. And, oh yeah. Um, yeah, they so had these, DVDs at the markets. Right. They were di- issuing out DVDs. Yep. Right. So I guess I you know what what's now known as you know what we know as ISIS today is the, the only difference is that you know they got people who know how to use social media. You know? Exactly. They they have the social media. They have the they have the, the network, man. They have the interweb at their disposal, the interwebs, and uh, they're taking advantage of it. They get a lot of young guys that know how to maximize that, and, you know, they're taking off with it. Right. Right, but it's interesting. I, I've read a couple books about them, uh, about yep. them and, and some of the other uh, groups out there, and – you know what they'll kind of be effective at at fighting a government or or taking land but they're completely ineffective at governing you know once they get to that governing part that's when the the, the rift right. builds between right. people um you know cuz they kind of really uh push that really strict interpretation of 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 you know the islamic laws and whatnot like you know cutting people's hands off for stealing and that kind of yeah. thing yeah yep um and and i think there's only so much people could take that uh, in today's day and age. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah, I think that, so the, the extremism or the Islamic radicalism that, you know, that however you want to call it, you know, people are seeing this, uh, like these, these people are sick, man. They have problems. We don't want to be part of it. And they're being, you know, disowned by their own countrymen. 
so to speak. You know what right. I mean? So thank goodness for that. You know, I mean, people are realizing, Hey, these people are radical. They're, they're crazy. You know, a lot of those guys, I mean, the, the wars, the, the war, if you want to call it that still today's battlefield is a result of us being there for so long, camping out and rebuilding infrastructure and building governments and trying to spread democracy the American way where you've got cultures that have been battling centuries old cultures that, you know, don't want to have anything to do with it. So, but we want to force feed it down everybody's throat. And what it does is it creates animosity and it creates, uh, just, just, um, what's the word? Just angry people, man. They don't want to be part of it. So they start going to the, the radicalist side and they want to kill Americans. You know, it's like, Hey, let's go kill an American. Let's, let's travel from, from, uh, Kenya to go kill some Americans. And then we'll come back home and, you know, have dinner and all that good stuff. I think Zakari really took advantage of that, those age old kind of beasts that they had, um, yep. you know, between Sunni and Shia Muslims and um, right. really stoked the flames. And it's really unfortunate if you, I mean, hindsight is always twenty twenty, right? But sure. if you, you know, looking back at the early days, um, they had a couple opportunities to, to kind of remove him from the uh, <coughs> battlefield and, and didn't really take it up, maybe not knowing how important it would have been to do that. Um, and then, you know, kind of uh, in in the early days, I think it was kind of mismanaged, like before the insurgency began. Right. Iran kind of sped into the south of Iraq and and, uh, and Jakari in, in the north, and they kind of set the stage for what, what would become, you know, a really bad place for a number of years. Right. Yeah, it was it was mismanaged to a point, and that's kind of got out of our hands. It, it became kind of real, a lot bigger than we planned, and you know it is what it is. Yeah. So, so kind of fast forwarding. You also do canine stuff, right? With your company. <laughs> yeah, I do. It's uh, so real quick, funny kind of. Thing. So canine is something I did the least amount of time in my special operations career, my last two years. Uh, and this was due to, well, there's a couple of reasons. I, I tore my ACL uh, when I was about 18 years in the Army. And I was at a decision point there. Um, you know, am I going to make E9? Am I going to continue? Am I going to go past 20? Because there's a huge bonus if I do. Um, but I need, oh, I'm sorry, it was like 19 years but I need to do with surgery and nine months of rehab. I was already a handler, but I, I tore my ACL while I was a dog handler doing decoy work of all things for dogs. Um, so I had to make a decision and I did want to retire at 20. Um, so in order to do that, I had to do a job where I was kind of in a non-deployable status so I could get my recovery and my surgery and all that good stuff, re- rehabilitation so I could retire on time. So I took the job as a 2IC of my unit's kennel and kind of helped manage the canine program, which was awesome. I learned a ton there. I worked with some top-notch trainers, and that kind of led me into my first job uh, as I retired. So it was pretty cool. But it is the thing I did the least amount of time, just two years. Right. So you, you, you've done a whole bunch of things in, t- in terms of uh, specialty and roles uh, in special operations, right? Sure. I, I did pretty much everything uh 
you know, you, you hear jack of all trades, master of none. I was an assaulter. I was a breacher. I did master breacher a little while. I was a sniper. I was, uh, I did kind of the human kind of, uh, advanced, uh, special operations stuff, you know, managing sources and that kind of stuff. Um, operations. I worked in operations for a little while. So I did a little, little of everything, try to expand my horizons, if you will. What rank did you end up uh, finishing up at? I retired as a master sergeant. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So the, the canine stuff is pretty interesting. Yep. Um, I don't remember exactly. I think like the utilizing canines wasn't fully implemented until like a couple of years into the GWAT, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, absolutely, man. That was a brand new capability to soft, uh, you know, special operations forces. Um, we didn't have it before the war and there was a pilot program at a special unit, uh, started with a couple of dogs and a couple of motivated guys that wanted to learn about them. And, they hired a superb trainer, probably one of the best in the country, a uh, former police dog guy. Worked, he's, he's a huge name in the police dog industry, police canine industry. We brought him to, the, to our place, and um, he helped get that going, and it became the, the spearhead, if you will, of all soft canine programs. Because once we started implementing dogs in all, all of our operational um, groups, Rangers followed on, SEALs followed in, uh, SF, you know, Green Berets, um, MARSOC eventually got them, or, you know, before it was at MARSOC, but once it was MARSOC, they took on the canine capability. Now it's huge. It's huge. I mean, they have seminars just for soft canine stuff now, so it's pretty cool, the evolution, because it was an awesome tool, man. I'm standing here talking to you right now with a pulse. Because several canines have saved my ass, either intercepting um, a, a guy wearing a suicide vest, waiting to clack himself off, or standing in the corner of a building with, a, with an AK waiting to burn us down as we, as we breach the door. So they're an awesome tool. Yeah, and it's, it's really incredible that uh, you know, some of the, um, the abilities that they have in terms of smelling and, and um, you know, obviously the hearing is and whatnot. Yeah. What about these canines? And, and obviously these canines that you guys are, are going out with are top-notch canines. Yes. Going through a, a selection process and whatnot. Yep, absolutely. Uh, what are some of those qualities that make them special? And what is it that they can do necessarily? You know, they can, I know they can like smell fear, uh, that kind of thing. A lot of it is genetic. A lot of it is breeding lines. And the Europeans have been doing it way longer than we have, so they're really good at it. So we went to the Europeans, and we asked them, hey, what makes a working dog badass and you know, do certain things? Because we're looking for a dog that can do multiple tasks, not just – they call them single-purpose canines, you know, a dog that will only detect explosives or a dog that will only search for bad guys and bite them. We need a, a multi-purpose, or we used to call them dual dogs, dual-purpose canines. So it was a dog that did apprehension work as well as search for explosives. <clears throat> so we test them, right? Like you said, a selection process. Oh, Their selection and assessment is probably a lot more rigorous than ours. I've seen more dogs really? get sent home packing to the vendors we got them from 
because they didn't cut the mustard, as they say, or meet meet our criteria. Yeah, it's it's pretty rigorous, man. They go through like a thirty day initial training and assessment, and I I would say the attrition rate. And its heyday was probably in the 80 to 90 percentile. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was pretty pretty rough, man. But um, basically, to answer your question, I know that's a kind of dragged out answer. We look for really good olfactory uh, work, use of the nose, because that's how they help us find either stinky bad guys to kill or (laughs) explosives that will kill us, right? Also, they see better in the dark than we do. Most people don't know this. They have better infrared eyesight than we do because real short anatomy anatomy lesson, you have rods and cone cells that make up your eyes. And what you see, we have more rods and cones, um, which allows us better visual acuity, sight at distance, and it allows us a broader scheme of color spectrum, right? Dogs have more cones than rods. So they see better in the dark than we do. But they don't see colors as well as we do, and their visual acuity isn't as good as us for distance. So that's why you have a handler with a dog. They're a team. It's not just a dog, right? Because the handler is typically the brains of the operation, or at least that's the way we we like to think of it. And he has, you know, he's using that that canine in the best way he can, according to the tact, you know, what, what makes sense at the time. But good nose. Good eyesight, good hearing. They use all their senses, everything. So that's typically what we look for. Oh, and nerve. We call it nerve. That 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 urge to get in there and get it on no matter what the threat to yourself is. Because we need dogs to do that. We need courageous dogs. We need brave dogs. We don't need a dog that hears gunfire and then puts his tail between his legs and runs behind the, the, the group of guys, right? We right. want a guy that... Here's a dog that hears gunfire and is like, sticks his ears up, turns his head. He's like, where's that coming from? And how can I get over there to go eat them? Right? right? So in a nutshell, that's what we're looking for. Strong, nervy dogs, but social because there's a lot of chaos and we don't want them biting operators or, or you know, good guys. Right, right. <clears throat> so w- would you be able to um... – you know, because you mentioned that you you've had your life saved by a, a, a canine. Could you would you be able to share just like a short story of an instance that that happened? Or yeah, I've got a bunch of those. Um, <laughs> so I'll give you an example. Okay. Um. <clears throat> so typically we lose dogs in what we call an area search. So helicopters come in, assaulters get on the ground, they assault a target. During that that loud ruckus, the bad guys here. They typically go, a lot of them will go and hide off in nearby wood lines or fields or culverts or whatever, where whatever terrain they have, they hide. And a lot of times they wear suicide vests because they're, they're big time guys and we're, we're going after some high value people. So typically they wear those or they build them. <clears throat> um, so what, what happens is uh, we have technology that sees those those things happening on the battlefield before we get there. And they, they give us radio calls, right? And they're like, Hey, you got us, we call them squirters. we got a squirter at this location, approximately in a hundred meter radius of, of this area. Okay. So after we're doing what we are, when we're done doing what we need to do at the target, we'll go and deal with that. So we'll send out a security team 
and a canine team, right? The security team's kind of providing ground security while the dog and handler do their thing looking for that bad guy. And they have a general area that they're searching. So typically, you know, you know, the downwind side makes sense, right? We'll go to the downwind side if, if it's tactically feasible. And we'll start that search with the dog. And my man, there's nothing like that look in that dog's eyes when he when he hits that odor of that bad guy. And he's like, oh, yeah, it's on. And then it's up to the handler to make that decision. Hey, do I send him? What's the threat? You know, or do I just kind of let him direct us in a little closer so we kind of use other means, i.e. cast close air support, or we throw grenades or whatever the case may be dictated by the, the ground situation. Um, but they're awesome, man. They, they, they make work a lot quicker and easier for us and uh, hunting down those bad guys because I know personally, like I said, where ambushes are laid waiting for us and the dog keyed up on that and, and picked up on it before we did. Even with ISR and all this other cool technology, they don't see everything on the battlefield. And we've had... We've had times where we've gone after known enemy positions with ISR, and then a good crosswind comes, and the dog picks up, turns his head, and hauls ass in that direction because he saw, or I'm sorry, he smelled somebody that was there that we didn't know about. And when when the bad guys see that dog running at them, they typically try to light them up. So you know they they uh, skid rounds off the ground, and sometimes the dogs get killed, um, but. A lot of lives get saved. A lot of lives get saved. Yeah, I've had a, um, a special forces uh, dog handler on the show, like in the early early episodes of the show. Yep. And he told a story like that where they were patrolling in Afghanistan and they were walking into an ambush and they had, they had an, an AC-130 above them, Yep. Uh, you know, scoping the area out and they didn't even realize it. But it, it was the dog who kind of smelled the ambush, I guess. And the dog's the dog sensors are so keen and so attuned. It, it's it's like words can't describe it, man. They're they're incredible animals. They're so good at it, and they love it. They live for it. Like that's the hugest reward to a working dog is to bite somebody. <laughs> yeah. They like it better than treats and praise and tennis balls and all that stuff. It's pretty cool. Right, and and these dogs are, um, like you said, there's dogs who you call like single-purpose dogs, you know, a bomb-sniffing dog or whatever. Right, right. But the, these dogs, you know, having that kind of dual purpose, like you said, are are, yep. are really kind of like the top of the line of, of, of any dogs anywhere. Really. Yeah, yeah. Cause, well, because if you think about it, you know, the cost-benefit analysis and, and, and kind of analyzing the training and man hours that go into producing a dog of that caliber, kind of like an operator of that caliber, you know, the, the highest level operator, you spend, oh shit, man, millions of dollars on a guy throughout the course of his career to get him the schools and the training and all the, you know, stuff he needs to do. Same thing with the dogs, man. They might drop, I don't know, we'll, we'll give ballpark numbers here. Let's say we spend $12,000 on, we'll, we'll call it a green dog, a dog that has no operational training just some basic bite work some basic obedience and maybe a little nose work so we have to train that dog to find explosives not just one or two explosives 15 different explosive odors that are the basic compounds that make most of your hmes homemade explosives and your uh, military grade explosives all right in addition to training the dog to learn all those odors we need to train them to find guys in the dark 
in the woods, in the mountains. So there's all these, we call it environmental stuff that we have to work on. Oh yeah. And he's got to do CQB with the guys, right? So he's going to go in that breach right after that door blew off its hinges, which is a pretty traumatic event, right? For the average dog or person go in there and look for bad guys to eat while there's assaulters flowing in behind him, engaging said bad guys, throwing flashbangs, placing door charges, all this chaos that's going on. And the dog has to single all that stuff out and put it aside and continue to search for a bad guy. And that's a lot of stress and a lot of inoculation that we do to those dogs to get them to that level, man. You're probably talking about man hours alone, a year, training a dog for about a year, five days a week, you know, eight hour days. Well, you don't train, you don't train a dog eight hours. You probably train the actual dog, let's say four hours of actually training because there's breaks and there's other dogs that got to run the problem. But man, there's a lot of time and effort that goes into making those dogs what they are. Yeah, I mean, that's really incredible because yeah. regular dogs in the street or whatever hear a, a loud bang or something and they're like reacting to it. But yeah, yeah. That chaos of assaulting a house, flashbangs going off. <clears throat> Make it, and oh yeah, he's got to discriminate. Right. Is there operators in that room already and bad guys at the same time? So he's got to discriminate and say, oh no, I'm not biting you, but I'm biting that guy over there in the corner with the AK 47 or whatever, whatever the case is. Right. Yeah, so they're, really they're very switched on, as we say. So here's something I wanted to ask you about. It's something that I, I want to dive deeper into on, on the podcast uh, and not just bring awareness, but, uh, you know, bring solutions and, and finding those solutions through talking to guys like yourself. Right. Recently, they've released a, a study about brain injuries and in, in NFL athletes. I think they did like uh, out of 111 guys' brains that they looked at, 110 of them had uh, brain damage. And that's from being hit over and over throughout the course of their career. Yep. Big, strong, fast guys hitting each other and whatnot. For uh, guys who are, who are in combat and in the military, that is also something that's commonplace as you're always in small confined spaces grenades are going off explosions are going off sure or you get blown up going over an ID or whatever yep so there's something interesting i i, I had a on the last podcast episode that i did i had a, a guy who was a uh, independent duty corpsman who was attached to uh, a, a marine raider battalion uh, for a couple of deployments yep and he was he was wounded uh, by a grenade fragment Oh, no, he threw a grenade in, in the area that he was at. And, uh, so from that, he had a, a TBI. He had read this after he got out or whatever. He'd read this study about this guy was attempting to bring honor to some of these World War One veterans who were uh, executed as deserters on the battlefield. And and what the guy was saying was is and some of, a lot of these guys were working like around artillery and whatnot. So what he was saying is he, what he, after he was able to uh, study some of their brain tissue and uh, what happened, what he he is saying happened is that these guys basically caught TBI. They were disorientated, kind of walked off the, where they were supposed to be at as a result of that. 
and that mm-hmm. led to them being executed. Right. Is TBI something that you've you've dealt with? You've seen some of your you know teammates deal with. Absolutely. Uh, most of the operators I know, probably, if I had to put a percentage to it, I'd say at least seventy percent, uh, myself included, have uh, traumatic brain injuries. Yep. And that's just a result of years of being in these overpressurized environments. Oh yeah, being really uh, probably a little close to a lot of charges, a little too close. Uh, helicopter hard landings, crashes. Um, explosions, you know, IEDs, mortar rounds, like I told you about that ambush on Easter of 2004, a lot of right. close proximity mortar rounds, um, just, just being concussed constant, uh, you know, shooting gunfire, man, high, high rates of gunfire in really tight rooms. I mean, it, it all produces concussion of some form and it does, it does take its toll. It does affect you. Yep. Some of the the, the guy I was talking with, what he was saying was he felt like some of the issues of PTSD where people were diagnosed with PTSD, he felt like those were incorrect diagnosis. And uh, in some cases, it was just the effects of the TBI, you know, like the right. mem- memory loss and, and some of that. Well, yeah. So here's 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 Fred's take on traumatic brain injury and, and more so um, post-traumatic stress disorder. I think PTSD is the term they're using today, uh, and as they learn more about it, because 10 years ago, they didn't know, you know, I don't want to put numbers and stuff. Let's say half. They didn't know half what they know today, right, 10 right. years ago. They're learning stuff. There's a new clinic now just for traumatic brain injuries for the military, which didn't exist when I got mine. Um, so they're, they're, they're making evolution and huge, huge uh, changes for the good for that. However, there's still a lot they don't understand, man. The brain is a hard organ to, to study and understand because while it's living, you can't remove it. You can't, you know, you just can't do a lot of stuff to the brain like you can to other stuff that you can take biopsies and stuff like that from. Um, I, I don't know, man. I think PTSD in some form. So, so. Let me get back. Let me just cut it. Let me make it short. So my thoughts on PTSD, I think combat changes everyone. Okay. I'm a different person today than I was 20 years ago. Okay. Uh, some of that is probably related to combat. Um, I'm not saying I have PTSD. I was never diagnosed with it because I really don't know what PTSD is. I'm not an expert. Uh, I know what the signs and symptoms are of it, which I don't have any. I do have traumatic brain injury, and I thank, I count my blessings every day, and I thank the good Lord that I don't have PTSD, as, as they say. But I'm different. My wife tells me all the time when we have, you know, our little scuffles and stuff. She's like, you know, you're not the same person. You're like, yeah, I know, I got it. And I'm, I'm learning how to deal with it and how to, you know, how to, how to cope or how to manage. Because I do have, you know, you, you hear the term brain farts and you know, brain fog and that kind of stuff. I have it all the time. Right. And uh, one of the reasons I chose to retire at 20 instead of going to 25 and taking a huge fat bonus is because of that, man. I don't want to be a liability to my mates on the battlefield. And I, I, there was a couple times where I kind of looked at myself. You know, you step back and look at yourself. You're like, 
yeah, I don't really like the way I handled that, or maybe that wasn't the best decision. So, you know, I had to be a, had to be a good sport, man, and say, thanks, it was fun, but, you know, it's probably time for me to move on. Um, and that's one of the reasons. I had a few other reasons as well. A lot of injuries, a lot of orthopedic stuff and whatnot. But, you know, who doesn't that's been in, you know, that much war? But, yeah, man, it's, I, I think PTSD is a real thing. And I think we're learning about it more and more every day. Uh, I know guys like Tom Spooner that have devoted their lives to, to research and recovery and rehabilitation and doing awesome things, you know, for it. Um, but it's something we don't know a whole lot about at this point in time. Yeah. And you know, it's funny you mentioned Tom Spooner cause heard i heard him on a podcast he was talking about uh yep. this is this is a couple of years ago you know maybe four years ago five years ago uh-huh. and he was talking about uh ptsd and um I, I can't remember exactly what i knew about it before or, or what i thought about it you know you, you kind of don't really know exactly you don't know details of it and then at some point you learn about it and then your perspective changes sure um but i remember listening to him talk about it and he, I specifically remember him saying um, that it got to a point where he felt more normal in Iraq or in a war zone than he did at home with his wife and his kids. And I remember when he said that to me, that's when I was just like completely um, kind of stunned by what you know, right. revelation and yeah, and that-, that was part of what inspired me to kind of you know do this podcast and and get more involved in the right. veteran space, you know. That's actually very common. Uh, I've, I've had similar thoughts uh, transitioning from being on combat deployments three months or four months on, three months, four months off, and then back and forth. You, you get into this rhythm and this rut, not a rut, but a rhythm. And it is, it is challenging, man. I've been retired five years now. I'm still, still adjusting to this life because right. the stuff I was doing before – is not even close to the stuff that I do today, no matter who I'm teaching or what I'm talking about. So it's definitely right. an adjustment, man. Yeah. Right. I mean, you go from, from, you know, running a hundred miles per hour to, you know, to kind of living somewhat normal life or what we consider normal in the United States. And I'm sure that's a huge transition, um, to make outside of, um, exactly what, Tom Spooner was talking about or what he talks about. I feel like this is from, I've talked to a lot of guys in special operations and, and some of them have felt like one of the things that have helped them is kind of uh, getting back into or, or getting into certain philosophy because just like anything else, nothing that's going on today hasn't happened in the past. Right. So, right. I mean, obviously it's different for warriors and whatever 14th century they weren't dealing with uh <laughs> airstrikes and whatever right but sure it's all similar stuff so if, if you look at some of the history or, or things written by warriors from the past i guess you can it, it'll help you understand some of it in some way and at, at least some guys feel like that you know i'm not sure what your take on that kind of stuff is yeah man it's it's uh it's an experience. I mean, I'll never forget it. I have no regrets. I sleep great at night. Uh, I have a little sleep apnea, but I'm dealing with that. But I sleep well. 
I don't have any issues, not that I know of, other than I'm, I'm a little bit probably different than I was, but plus I'm old, I'm an old man now. I'm in my, you know, well into my forties. So I get made fun of a lot, but yeah, man, it, it's a, it's a life changing experience. Uh, and it depends in different degrees, how much weird or bad or bizarre stuff you were exposed to. If you look at the movies like Hacksaw Ridge, you know, I see guys, that's a true story. I see guys that went through that and saw that stuff when they scaled that, that cliff. And like, I, I look at that, I'm like, Oh my God, like, how did they continue to charge forward? Like, right. you knew you were going to die. You know, you said in your mind, I'm dying today, you know? And I don't know, man. Uh, you know, in the invasion of Normandy, uh, I mean, Iwo Jima, you, you pick it. Those, those right. guys like that, you know, my grandfather, my older uncles, I'm like, how, how did they deal with that? Like, how did that not change them? You know? So, you know, I think there was a, a difference. Um, culturally, we were a little different back in the day. Sure. You know, like, sure. Like more reserved kind of, I guess, more conservative overall, you know? Yep. And and the culture was just different. Like I had a uh, a guy on the podcast, and he's become a good friend of mine. Uh, he was a team leader uh, in Mac V Sog in Vietnam. He was a Green Beret. Yep. He had a a uh, I think it was a cousin or a brother in law or something like that who served in an infantry unit, and they were both wounded in Vietnam, and they came home, and he said they never had one conversation about right. Vietnam, you know. Right. And and that's kind of crazy to me. You know, I just can't imagine. But that's that's just the kind of difference of, of the times, you know? Yeah, exactly. They put it away and they forgot about it. You know, or maybe not forgot about it. You know what I mean? They put it away and it's it's never coming out again. So, Right, it kind of stays in the box, yeah. That's right. Right. So um, so if anyone listening or anybody, uh, you know, I'm going to post this on social media and whatnot. If anyone's interested in, in linking up with you uh, for some training or, or consulting or whatever, where's the best place they can do that? Um, so I'm on Facebook, Storm Tactical Consulting. I also have Instagram, Storm underscore Tactical underscore Consulting, all lowercase. And I also have a website. Just Google Storm Tactical Consulting and you'll find it because it's, it's a free website at this point. So it's a kind of a, a, not a really common domain. It's really long. So you have to Google it and it, you'll get the link. Okay. So um, we spoke about in the very beginning. There's a lot of kind of oversaturation in the, in the <laughs> firearms training industry, and just if anyone anyone listening who's who takes courses or considering taking a course, uh, obviously a guy like Fred is the guy, one of the guys you want to go to for uh, that type of training, you know? Yeah, there's you know I get a lot of buddies, you know they're competitors as well. Sometimes we work together, sometimes we need help, so we re- recruit other buddies that that know what they're doing. And we talk about it. It's like, yeah, there's a lot of frauds out there, man. Um, and we tell people, you know what? We don't badmouth them. We don't point name or name names or point fingers. We just say, take it, take their class. You might end up wasting, you know, whatever the fee is, 400, 500, who knows what the fee is. And then, you know, train, take different courses and you'll see, you'll see if they know what they're doing. You'll fundamental, basically your fundamentals. How well do you improve in that two day course or that three day course? Right. Yep. Right, because it's all about mastering the basics. Yeah. That's it. That's all you can do. All right, cool, man. So, Fred, I just want to thank you for taking up the time to come on here and do this. Um, you know, I know for the people who listen to the show, 
you know, the discussion we had, and, and especially when we were talking about uh, the PTSD stuff and the, and the uh, concussion stuff, that really has a lot of value. Um, and I, like I said, I just want to thank you for taking the time to do this, and uh, thank you for your service as well. My pleasure, man. Thanks for having me on. I, I really do appreciate uh, the favor. Kudos to you. Good, good things. Cool, man. Thanks. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Search Global Recon Podcast. If you don't have an Apple product, check us out and give us a download on SoundCloud.com to search Global Recon Podcast. Check out my website at www.globalrecon.net. I'm on Instagram at IG Recon. The second account is Black Ops Matter. The third account, which me and, and my co-host, uh, we co-manage, uh, is Mission Underscore Critical. I'm on IG Recon at Twitter. Next week, I have an episode that I feel like is the most important episode that I've done to date. It is about traumatic brain injury, uh, blast injuries, the effects of it, the issues with the VA and the way it's treat, uh, diagnosed, several issues like that. And on with me, uh, one is a special operations independent duty corpsman, retired. And the other guy is a, and a senior 18 Charlie Green Beret with a number of deployments and uh, traumatic brain injuries and whatnot. And I think we really uh, hit the nail on the head with that episode. So that's coming out next week, next Wednesday. So be on the lookout for that. Really important episode. And, you know, like I said, I encourage you to just continue to uh, support. And that way we'll continue to bring you high-quality content each week. So we'll see you next week. Peace.